Welcome to the Everyday Peacemaking Podcast. I'm Oshita Moore. And I'm Jer Swigert. Join us as we grow our imaginations for joining God and others in mending divides. Hey everyone, welcome back. Jer and I are together and we are chatting again about our lives as peacemakers. And some of you may already know this, but I serve as a pastor in the Twin Cities alongside my husband. And I also have a book out on anti-racism and peacemaking. And so because of that, sometimes other churches will ask me to come and talk about the book, Dear White Peacemakers. And so I was recently with a group that was reading Dear White Peacemakers and teaching them. And in forming that class with them, we had all collectively decided that we were going to be mostly online, but that didn't sit right with me because a huge part of my book is calling out the belovedness in each other. And I just don't always feel like I can do that online very well. And so we decided that at the end, we would have a dinner together where I would make the recipe from my book of gumbo for the community of all white learners, all white peacemakers. And it, what's interesting is that I was actually working on my final class with that group the same day Jer and I had a conversation about the importance of the table for him and his peacemaking. As some of you may recall, in our last conversation, you heard Jer allude to being in Burma and having just a transformative experience there, equipping and guiding and companioning peacemakers there. So Jer, you and I started talking when I was telling you about my experience of wanting to gather these people and make gumbo for them because I had this beautiful experience of making gumbo and being at the table with peacemakers and the humanizing work that the table does for us. I was telling you about this as you were telling me about your experience with the table in Burma. And we just thought that for this conversation and maybe a couple more, that we would invite you into a conversation around the table. And so these next few conversations are going to be about what does it look like for us to be in real time with each other in one of the most vulnerable ways we can be eating and sharing our food and sharing our culture and sharing our stories with each other. So, Jer, I am so grateful that you came and you shared that story. And I really would love for you to let our peacemakers into kind of where you are with this conversation around the table and peacemaking. Yeah, I think one of the things that you and I share such deep resonance on is the notion that the table is the most important piece of furniture in the work of peacemaking and reconciliation. Yeah. It's the great equalizer. And right. uh, and I feel lucky to have actually shared a table with you and TC and friends here in Spokane around that delicious recipe of gumbo that you just referred to. And I think that's the thing about the table and it being a piece of furniture that promotes reconciliation is that it deepens relationships with existing friends. It's the place of forging new relationships. But in my experience as an everyday peacemaker, it's also one of the most important spaces to repair severed. Mm -hmm. You know, those of you who are listening, you just, you know, the, 
there's something really disarming about food and um, and sharing it, whether it's a hot beverage and a snack or it's an actual well-prepared meal. We're experiencing something together. We're doing something that we're actually created for. We're taking in something that is designed to sustain our lives. And the whole point of our lives is love with one another. And so there's all sorts of things I think that happen around the table. And so first and foremost, we would say that the table is the most important piece of furniture in the, in, in the work of everyday peacemaking. I think the story that I want to share, the most recent story of the power of the table does come out of the experience that I just had in Burma. And in a future episode, we're going to have a bit of a conversation with some of my friends who experienced that with me. But there was one moment of sharing a table that was especially profound. And I just want to invite you into it. And then let's talk about how what I experienced around that table actually translates into the ways that we can use our own tables as everyday peacemakers in our homes, in our cities, in our workplaces, and wherever you find yourself. Yeah. For us, we had been traveling for six or seven days, and we were really, we were really at the front line of the revolution that's happening over there. And we got to a space of rest and respite for soldiers. This is a place where soldiers would retreat from the front lines for a week of rest and and then they would emerge back into the front lines of the struggle for about three weeks. The unique reality of this environment is that it was still just a couple of kilometers away from the front line. And so, you know, we're listening to the sounds of war, bullets being fired and mortars dropping. And so kind of an odd an odd irony to be in a place of respite where you're still within earshot of bombs dropping. And but interrupting the sounds of the bombs, we heard the sound of a guitar. And my buddy Jesse and I were immediately drawn to that. And so we kind of moved our way through this camp to figure out where is the music coming from and actually got to the outskirts, the very fringe of the camp and found a group of five men, a woman and two children sitting on an array of banana leaves on the ground. It's their table. They had set a table on the floor of the jungle and they had prepared an incredible feast and as we walked up, of course, here's two Western dudes in a military outpost in the middle of the jungle. It's odd. And what I watched, though, is that rather than holding us with suspicion, they immediately widened their circle and invited us to sit with them. And, and as we sat, food was immediately passed to us. And there happened to be one individual who could speak enough English that we were able to actually engage in a very slow dialogue that took about the next three, three and a half hours. And it was one of the richest experiences that I had over there. Let me just offer a couple of, a couple of uh, snapshots from it. What we learned quickly around that table is that the men and the woman and the two children that we were sitting with were Burmese who had defected from their side of the revolution to join the, the revolution or the rebellion side. And there's all sorts of complexity in all of that, but needless to say, these are individuals who at one time fought literally as soldiers for the group that held power. And now they have aligned themselves with the group who have no power or at least wow. structural political power in that sense. And so we began to actually listen to their stories. And what I found was really incredible is that the lead translator, the person who could speak English the best always started his questions with, what is your opinion about? And then he would ask the question, you know, in, in, in some of the questions he asked, what, what is your opinion 
about war and violence? What is your opinion about us at one time fighting for our government and now fighting against them? What is your opinion on forming alliances like this where once we were enemies, now we're comrades? Mm. I just mm. liked that question. What's your opinion? Because what he was doing is right-sizing our perspectives on this as opinions. Mm. All we could share were our opinions. And so the way that he asked it invited us to share our opinions in ways that were open and not conclusive and created lots of opportunities for further conversation. And, and of course, for us to reciprocate around their opinions of some things, including our very presence around that table. We began to hear personal stories, and that's one of the things that I love that happens around shared tables is, again, it's such a human experience and it encourages us to move beyond the talking points and the disagreements to actually hear one another's stories. We heard about recipes that we were eating. We learned that the very table had been set in celebration of four of these men who had just finished up some training and were being deployed as medics on the front line of this war. And, and at one point, there was a lull in the conversation. And so I asked the question, who, which one of you was playing the guitar? And I wonder if you'd be willing to play another song. And so the musician among them picked up the guitar and he began to play a song and sing it in his native dialect. Now, while this is happening, the friends that we were traveling with and the work that we were doing were among an ethnic minority. They were folks who were in the revolution fighting against the Burmese in this case. And I watched in the course of two hours as my friends who are Karen or Kenya is the way that they would designate themselves, the Kenya friends slowly inched closer and closer to the table. And as they would inch closer, the crew sitting around the table, they would adjust themselves to widen the circle. Mm. But mm. my Kenya friends wouldn't sit down until the music started to play. Once the music started to play, then some of my Kenya friends actually took their seat at the table, the spaces that had been created for them. And I'm aware in this moment that now we have former mortal enemies sharing a table with one another. Yes. And the soundtrack is not perspectives of war and violence and politics. The soundtrack is song. It's music. Mm -hmm. Burmese soldier finishes his song. And, and then one of my Kenya friends asks for the guitar. And this was the moment that just blew my mind. He had been standing there for two hours listening to a conversation. And he'd been inching closer and closer to the table. The music begins and something ignites inside of him, in, it, which causes him to actually sit at the table. Then he asks for the guitar and the song that he plays is not a song in his own language from his own people. The song that he chooses to play is the song of their revolution in their language. And I've got this beautiful video of these Burmese defectors, beloved image bearers, newly commissioned medics, singing with an amount of passion, the likes of which I've rarely seen before, maybe with the exception at that being at a YouTube concert, honestly, passionately singing their revolution song led by 
someone who once upon a time was their mortal enemy, but now is becoming their comrade. The meal concluded and just the friendship that was shared around that table was extraordinary. The learning that happened was extraordinary because the conversation was just human and vulnerable and honest. But here's, as I walked away from the table, back to our hammocks for the night, I talked to my friend who sang the song and asked him about his experience of the night. And what he said to me was this. He said, I'm realizing that this is the first time in my life that I have ever met a Burmese person. Wow. I'd ever met the person who has been my mortal enemy. Mm-hmm. Which mm-hmm. I think I'll close the story with that. Just this notion that the potential of the table, when it's saturated with food and curiosity and music, When we find affinity, when we widen the circle and make sure that people are welcome around, the table doesn't just have the potential to fill up our bodies, but actually flood our hearts, our souls, our minds, awaken our imaginations, and literally has the potential to transform enemies into friends. Mm. It's a humanizing place. It's where I think we discover our belovedness both for ourselves and for one another's, but also for our irritants and our enemies. And so that, that's the story of the shared table. And of course, you and I have thousands of stories of sharing tables with people all over the place, most notably yeah. in our own locations. But I think there's some unique things to pull from this story in terms of how we deploy the table or utilize it in our own practice as everyday peacemakers. 100%. I have six sort of guide posts or invitations for us into making room at the table or coming to the table as a furniture, as a place for Mm -hmm. peacemaking. But I have two really important questions that I need for you to answer before I get to these guideposts, okay? First of all, what did you eat? And then who provided the food? Yeah, good. The primary meal was pork belly. And pork is a staple over there and rice, you know, so it was rice with pork belly. And then, and then the woman who was the partner of one of the medics, the two of them provided the food and she was the one who prepared it. All of them were her own family recipes, including this unbelievable sauce for the pork belly. And so that's what we had. I'm so jealous. It was, I mean, after days of, after days of a lot of rice. And a lot of vegetable, which was delicious as well. It was a luxury, you know, a delicacy to actually have some pork belly there. So I love surprised by the luxury of that meal, especially in that location. My Uh, my family actually, we were around the table and we were talking about if we could give up one starch and then like only have one starch for the rest of our life. So like we give up one and we choose one for the rest of our lives. That was our like table question. And my husband is Irish and I'm African-American, obviously. So we were going around the table and I was so surprised that one of my kids was like, oh, I would give up pasta. I would give up potatoes. I can't give up rice. I was like, you are a child after my own heart. I will give up everything. I eat rice with everything. Everyone yeah. else in my family was like potatoes or pasta. So yeah, that, yeah. that would have been my dream, Jer. Rice and vegetables for yeah. several days. I mean, that's kind of... Actually, you know, we're in Lent and I actually toyed with the idea of just doing beans and rice for Lent. But then I thought that's too similar to how I already eat and what you feel like. <laughs> yeah. You're not really um, giving up anything in that case. Not really giving up anything because, you yeah. know, it's every culture has a rice and bean. And so yeah. I wanted us to land with some 
of these, I'm calling them guideposts, but there's probably a better word for them. Things that I pulled from your story that all of us can apply to our lives as peacemakers. I love what you said at the beginning about just sitting across from the table and like a treat and a cup of coffee, making the intentional space to invite others. And I have a friend who has teens and she noticed that she was feeling disconnected from her teens. And so she would have just tea time at her dining room table and she would just set a lovely teascape and then text the family and say, I'm having tea, whoever will love to join me. And that was a way for her to reconnect with her family and to practice that space of belovedness and belonging right in her own context. So as I was listening to you, the very first thing that I thought was use what you have, like Mm -hmm. the idea of creating a table or a tablescape and space for people to come together with the banana leaves. And the same way, like I, for me, when I wrote Dear White Peacemakers and I thought, uh, what is a recipe that's meaningful for me that's attached to this particular framework of mirroring my peacemaking ethos with my anti-racism. Gumbo was obviously it. In my first book, Shalom Sisters, when I talked about everyday peacemaking, it was red beans and rice because like I just said, it's a staple and peacemaking should be as natural to us as like the staples that we have in our pantry. And so what I really love was that this story started with just using what you have in this very exotic kind of outside of our almost imagination. Like I can't even imagine being able to put myself there in the jungle in Burma, but I can imagine taking a tablecloth from my sideboard and setting a table and making beans and rice or making barbecue chicken and mashed Mm -hmm. potatoes, which is what I'm cooking for dinner tonight. But like, use what you have. Don't overthink it. I really love that. I think that that diffuses that kind of performative posture that so many of us are afraid of. And that becomes an obstacle to us because of the consumeristic hospitality, Martha Stewart industrial complex of it all, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I love that, like using what you have. The next thing that stood out to me was lower your expectations slash embrace the slow. Really loved the three-hour intentional translated dialogue. I can imagine sometimes you can hear someone like you or myself say, the table is an important piece of furniture for your peacemaking. Like the beautiful things happen at the table. Make room for the table. It can feel overwhelming. Like, well, how do I facilitate all that? And I think the lowering of your expectations, taking it slow, and then leading into the next thing, ask questions. Just that is the that is the purpose of bringing people to the table of just getting to know someone and lowering your expectation for like some big piece of core to happen or some big massive breakthrough that you've facilitated. But just the the slowness and the intentionality and the questions, the disarming question, like that's what carries that work through. The other thing I thought was there is a really sweetness about making room and saving room. So like Roots, where my husband and I pastor, we worship around the table. So when you walk into our location, there are tables set up and we have table hosts and we invite people to come in. And sometimes you might catch me saying, like, we want to make room for you or like save room for each other. Or like when somebody comes in and they're like, a new person and they're looking for a place, I'll say like, oh, we've made room at this table over here, make room. And I, I, I sense that in your story of just even kind of 
some people standing to the edges and kind of watching and not really being like, I don't know that I can sit and eat. But then as the overwhelming presence of peace and belonging and invitation came, the others made room for them to sit. Mm-hmm. And they, they, there's a space of that. And I love the power of a playlist. You and I were just talking. You're not really as into music as I am, but like I cannot live without my Spotify. And so I just love the power of music, of bringing people together, singing together. So just even incorporating, like we have a little blessing song that we sing at our table, but even incorporating something that you can sing together or listen to together. Beyonce just came out with a new album and I'm planning a listening party around the table because I just feel like that's holy and important to listen together. But music can communicate things and spark conversation that we don't even know how to begin. And then the last one was just make room for the gifts and offerings of others. Like the young man who was like, well, let me take the guitar and then play. He played something and their language. Yeah. So those are the things that I pulled from your story. Interact with that. Tell yeah. me what stands out to you. That's such a thank you for doing that. I mean, uh, what a beautiful tapestry just by pulling those threads that, that you've actually created for all of us. The one that I think I want to maybe lean into a little bit more is the notion of pace and in this case, translation. There's so much relevance, I think, for us, though we speak English, many of us in this country. We, as everyday peacemakers, I think need to become the kinds of people who are setting tables or finding ourselves invited to sit around tables with people whom, though they may speak English, use words very differently, have very different perspectives, see the world very differently than we do. What perhaps we need to consider as we move into those tables is like the pace of translation and making sure that we're actually hearing each other. You know, like I'm even thinking about the times that I'm accused of using words in creative ways, you know, placing words together and, you know, the gift of the hyphen and all of the things. I was encouraged many times around that particular table to slow down, to say it again, the invitations sounded like, can you repeat that? Or he would say, I want to make sure that I understood that so that I can translate that properly. And there's something really profound, I think, around the pace that we need to embody around the table. Do we have not only the, the margin to invite people to our tables or to invite them to the tables that exist already in our communities, be it restaurant tables or coffee shop tables or green space tables or whatever it is, can we linger there long enough to make sure that we hear and understand the person that we're, that we're connecting with? You know, so there's something really, again, the table, I think, invites pace. And I think what we may need to consider as everyday peacemakers is how does our anxiety around maybe convincing somebody of the superiority of our idea, our perspective, our language, the way that we see it, the way that we say it, how does that interrupt pace and actually limit the currency of trust that actually wants to grow between us? Or how does our busyness and sense of importance and full calendars, how does that actually invite a pace around the table that again 
inhibits the possibility of trust to, to grow between us. It's one thing to invite one another around the table, but once we're there, can we actually break agreement with conquering and converting? And can we break agreement with productivity and all of the tasks to actually be at the table fully present, listening yes. deeply, trusting that in the midst of this conversation, I'm going to probably be transformed. I'm going to grow. Yes. Yes. And uh, I love that. I love whenever you say break agreements, because I just know like the next thing you're going to say is fire. It's just going to be like such a challenge for me. But I also am curious about the role of the interpreter, the one who is translating versus the role of the question asker versus the role of the storyteller and how like that can interchange from person to person at the table. But I think that the kind of peacemaker I want to be is the one who's agile enough to know in this conversation, I am the translator. And my role of peacemaking is to take in what one person is saying and turn to the other and say, this is what they mean, or this is what they're mm -hmm. asking. And to do that work of like bringing both people into a humanizing space where some tables or some moments at the table, I'm the storyteller and I need to know that there's somebody who is trans doing that work of translating. Like, here's what she's saying. Here's her story. And then some places, some tables, I'm the question asker. I'm the one that's asking, what is your opinion? Because I truly am trying to get past my own prejudices and my own biases. And so I'm the one who's asking the questions trusting that there is somebody who can tell their story and hold my questions in a non-anxious presence and that there's a translator mm. who can say, actually, like this is what she is trying to communicate or this is where she's trying to understand. And I think that too often the overwhelm of the table for me is that I think I have to function all three all mm. the time. But maybe there are some parts of a conversation where I am just the translator. I think of this sometimes when I'm sitting at the table and I have a 21-year-old, an 18-year-old, and a 17-year-old, and a husband who I love dearly, but sometimes he's trying to communicate something and my kids aren't getting it. And I am the translator mm -hmm. where I am carrying it to them or they or my husband's trying to tell a story and, and I'm asking questions and my kids are saying, actually, like, this is what dad's trying to say, or like, this is how it ties into whatever. Like, there are times where we kind of switch that around. And so I think Another question to ask is, and to ask the spirit too, as a spirit-led peacemaker, what is my role in this mm -hmm. conversation and how do I live into that non-anxiously with humility and with a gentleness that mm -hmm. inspires a collective belovedness? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's so good because then it also invites us to think about, I think, the potency of working together to host tables. Yeah, people with different skill sets, but we're there on purpose. The purpose being we want to know those whom we don't yet know, or we want to work together to address a divide that whether the table is set, you know, it with, with those who we have an interpersonal break with, or we're inviting people to the table who are on the other side of some kind of divide in our city. Like I am <laughs> there, we are here collectively to know one another, to build the currency of trust, to then work together to mend this divide. Right. You know, we don't have to do this alone. That was part of the beauty of the table, even that we shared as friends in Spokane when you were here, 
is that there was such intentionality around that table and everybody was playing different roles and it really deepened the experience. It made it HD. Now, we weren't navigating an interpersonal conflict between one another, but the currency of trust grew because each person sitting around that table was their unique self, bringing their unique contribution to the table. Okay, but hold on, Jer. You were straight up the translator for my teenage son who was so mad at his dad. And he like said something about his dad on the way out. And I I was so embarrassed because like there was a misunderstanding and my son was like, my dad's being a jerk or something like that, like heading out. And I was so embarrassed because like, I just wanted to make a good impression on you and Jack and Lynn and Ben. And I'm like, oh my gosh, my son and my husband, which they're like these two like lions who are just going at each other because they're both like strong personality types. And there was a misunderstanding and my son like set the thing on its way out. And you were like, he's pretty good dude like he's like he's really like he's like really honest like he's like a really honest person like he translated Mm -hmm. the very best of my son in that moment (laughs) (laughs) and then i think lynn said something like oh it's like such a gift that he could just be like that in front of us or somebody so i think it was either lynn or jack but i just remember being like oh okay it's okay that my family is not perfect in front of everyone but it was that moment of like you doing that work of like Mm. my son had something to say and you translated it for the collective table and de-escalated it Mm. in this really important way and i think that is when we talk about peacemaking at the table it's those kinds of moments and bringing together those kinds of people who have made a collective Mm. agreement to model peace and the making of it Mm-hmm. with each other. Yeah, right on, right on. Let me offer one more role that I saw around that table for us to consider and then Oshita take us home. <laughs> there was the dude who had done the work to learn their song, their language. Yes. And I think that's maybe my challenge to us in, you know, y- yes, let's embrace the power of the table to simply know and be known and all of the beautiful threads that you pulled for us as everyday peacemakers. But I think the challenge for me coming out of that is what does it mean to become the person who, despite the fact that he had never met a living person that represented his constructed enemy, for whatever reason, he had still done the work to learn the most important song to them and sing it in their language. And so for us as everyday peacemakers, yeah, we can be the storyteller, the interpreter, the listener, the question asker, all the things, but maybe we all need to figure out what is the most important song of the soul of that person and how do we sing it, metaphorically speaking, in their language? Because what that did around that table was so remarkably reparative visibly, but in ways in which I don't think any of us saw or can understand or will even necessarily be realized. Keeping in mind Mm -hmm. that the reason that these men and women and two children were on the outskirts of the camp is because nobody actually trusts them. They're defectors. Mm. So, But now you have a Kenya soldier singing their song in their language And lots of people listen to that. And it just makes me wonder, what were the seeds of peace, of restoration, 
that were planted, not only in those of us who were sitting around the table, but for those of us who were observing as well? What happened there? Well, yeah, I mean, it's interesting that your read of the story is that he learned that and it was kind of like in his back pocket because my read of the story, and maybe this is just my own context, is like, I think he's heard that song enough and it's, it was just kind of running in the back of his mind and that the spirit utilized that piece of information that he's heard and maybe didn't, like it didn't apply to him, but he's known it. It's been mm. back there and that the spirit deployed that mm. plowshare for that moment, yeah. right? And mm. so I wonder, the question for me is, what are the things that I hear about the other that, you know, it's just surrounding me. I'm hearing it all the time. What are the dog whistles? What are the talking points? Like, what are the things that I'm hearing? I don't really pay a whole lot of attention to them or I don't apply them to my life because that's not my context, but it's kind of running in the background. And then what is the prayer that I can go to when I'm recognizing I'm sitting across from somebody who needs to hear me say the words that matter to them? You know, what's the prayer that I ask? Like, spirit, give me the song of their heart or Mm. spirit, help me use language that matters to them. You know, not to get like super (laughs) like 1990s evangelical marriage. No, go there. Like, what are the love? Let's like, what's their love language? Like, Mm -hmm. what is the language of their heart that Mm -hmm. we can use even though it's uncomfortable? So like for me, there are sometimes as a black woman when I'm working with the white peacemaker that it's uncomfortable for me to acknowledge their fragility because it, you know, of all the reasons why as a Black woman, I'm told I'm not supposed to. But oftentimes the Spirit tells me that is a sacred and holy invitation to acknowledge the trauma the white peacemakers experience in this work. And so I do that and I include that in my work and my practice of peacemaking because that's language that de-escalates. So the invitation for our listeners entering into everyday peacemaking is to ask the spirit, what are those songs of the soul or those love languages, if you will, or like, what are the things that that the other needs to hear from you? Because one of the reasons I wrote Dear White Peacemakers, the way I wrote it was because I felt like it was important to have a woman of color say words, speak words of belovedness and belonging over white allies. Like that was important. So what is the important thing that you can speak and say? And I think In our everyday life, like I have a kid right now who struggles with anxiety and perfectionism a lot. And like the song of her soul, like, is that you are enough and that she is loved no matter what, and that it's okay for her to take breaks and that I am taking breaks. So maybe that is something that you can look into or you can pray about, listener. Who is your other and what do they need to hear? And how is it most potent? And disarming coming from you, someone they know that does not share their same position. So yeah, that that's our invitation. That's our gentle invitation. As we continue to explore the table, we're going to have some more upcoming conversations around this, right, Jer? But this first question or this first kind of pondering around it is, you know, what is the song that you can be listening for and prepared to deploy as a peacemaker? Tearing down walls, building up the bridges between us. Ooh, ooh, ooh. 
friends, coming up on the podcast feed, we've got a couple more virtual immersions coming your way, coming out of what's happening real time in Israel, Gaza, and some perspectives here from North America. We're going to be having a conversation with our dear friend Alejandra Ortiz talking about Lent and Lament. And what is this practice? Why is it so critical? What does it do in us? What does it do to us? What does it do through us? Then we're going to return to this theme of table. And Oshida is going to share us some stories out of how she uses the table, especially as it intersects with Holy Week and the sacred moment called Maundy Thursday. So watch for that coming just before Holy Week. Lastly, we want to just express our gratitude to our Embers community. This is our community of funders who are investing in peace by giving to Global Immersion. Their investment powers forward artifacts like the Everyday Peacemaking Podcast. And so if you're interested in investing in peace as well, we invite you to join the Embers community. Let's do this work together. Sincere thanks to the Brilliance for use of their song, Turning Over Tables. Learn more about the work of Global Immersion, forming everyday peacemakers and reconciling leaders to mend divides at globalimmerse.org.